VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And this week, please do not be too depressed. I know it's International Week, but there's reason to smile because I'm joined in the studio by Tony Cascarino and Julian Lawrence. And in addition, from his secret location in beautiful Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. Also this week, we'll be talking to a new chap who's come on board at The Times, Paul Joyce. He wrote an excellent piece in the game about Jose Baxter. Anybody remember him? I do. I okay, do. three out of four. Oh, four out of four. hundred percent of us Youngest do. Everton player, wasn't he? Youngest yeah. ever Everton, yes. And uh, we'll also be featuring the second part of our debate with Damian Collins and Martin Ziegler, too. But first, there's only one place to start, Wembley. Ollie, England play Scotland. So, okay, so in the run-up to the game... I sort of articulated this belief in my head that maybe Scotland were going to sneak something. And I'll give you my reasoning. I thought the atmosphere would be maybe a little bit more muted, a little bit, you know, subdued because of the poppies. I bought into the whole Braveheart thing. I thought of Gary Southgate looking goofy and confused. I thought about their last home game uh, when England couldn't score. Once they got on the pitch, I just saw there really is such a golf and talent. I, I was foolish to believe that, right? Yeah, idiot, idiot, Gab. I don't think England would have surpassed your expectations or anybody else's sort of fairly low expectations. I thought it was a fairly average performance from them. But and to be honest, I thought Scotland did about as well in 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 all round play as as I would have expected them to. They, they competed well in midfield. They they had some ideas going forward. They created some chances, but there's no real quality. If you look at the quality in both penalty areas, championship quality really. You saw the way they sort of panicked when they had those chances, particularly at one nil for England. And um, it is, as you say, a golfing quality. And that's not me saying. England are great. That's me saying England are, are second rate and Scotland are, are third rate. And as such, it probably went to um, everyone's expectations, but, but yours, Gab. Julian, when you have a team like England, if, if you were Gareth Southgate or if you were one of those performance guys whose pictures we saw on the bench a few weeks ago and we had no idea who they were, in a game like this, all you really want is just execution, show that you can go and, and, and complete whatever routines you have you have set up. And you kind of treat this the way you would any humdrum qualifier, right? Southgate said after the game, he said, I'm really happy because the things we, I saw tonight, the things we worked at training. What was that? Because I didn't see, apart from a cross from your right back for a header that scores a goal and a cross from your left back for another header that scores a goal. What on earth did they work at training that he saw on Friday night? Because I didn't see much. I have to say, I watched the France game first and then I, I recorded the England one to watch after that. Before bedtime. Yeah, and I, I, that was a huge mistake. I should have waited for Saturday morning because, I'm sorry, I didn't enjoy that at all. And I don't know why Southgate said, when, when Southgate said, you know, we worked on things at training and I'm so delighted that we saw them during the match, I was like, what was that? Because I mean, apart he's from talking crosses, about defensive even, movements, maybe he's talking really? about runs they off the ball. They could have considered seven goals, easily. Five, no, maybe not right. seven, five. What, what, and offensively, they? offensively, in terms of the routine you were just talking about, I didn't see, I didn't see enough movement. I didn't see, I didn't see anyone people going over. To, I didn't see much. I have to say, Cass, are you as negative as <laughs> as Julian here? 
Well, I felt that there was some average performances, but you're going to get that in games. Um, they certainly are Lee Griffiths up front, down the middle, says really all about where Scotland are. And if you look after after him, it's sort of people like sure. Stephen for, Fletcher. For people who are not familiar with, with Lee Griffiths, can you give right. us like a little capsule, other than the fact that he's, okay. he's tiny, uh, no, about, about, about well, why it's so weird that Lee Griffiths plays up front? Well, first of all, he hasn't been part of Scotland's starting lineup for quite a number of games. Um, he's been substitute at Celtic. He's not found his, his way into that team. Yeah, he scored loads of goals, but he scored loads of goals in England at a lower level. And Chris Boyd okay. lo- Is he sort of like a modern-day Chris Boyd? I'd say slightly better, better movement. Um, he's a good finisher, but it sort of shows you where Scotland are. I mean, Stephen Fletcher, is anyone, have I got to give his CV as well? No, I'm familiar no, okay. with, with well, his work. Thank you. They are short of quality players. England, uh, I agree with Julian at times, well, I thought were poor defensively. I thought there was a lot of elementary uh, wasting of passing where needless passing from out the back and outwards and not really if you close down and look Scotland tried didn't they for the first 15 minutes really tried to close down England they've done it for 15-20 minutes and they looked the better side at the start of the game they obviously couldn't keep it up and England looked in trouble they looked like they could concede something the bigger picture is we don't know where England are because we look at the team from where the Euros and the team that now is playing where they are, uh, the levels. I think Gareth is going to walk into the job and find it. it's going to be a very tricky one. Interesting point here. I want to get Ollie's point and then go take it back to Cass because Henry Winter basically says that John Stones gave the ball away several times, but he's clearly worth the risk for England. Obviously, the guy tries to play out of the back, he plays to his skills, and sometimes he gets caught in possession. I mean, it happens with City as well. Ollie, I tend to agree with Henry, but I don't want to give that away. Um, But is it a case that it's one thing for Stones to play this way for City because that's part of the philosophy of the whole team, but Gareth Southgate doesn't play that way, so maybe he should learn when he plays for England not to take some of these chances? I would also say that when he's at uh, Man City, he's he's in a, a much more technically gifted team, a, a team full of players, particularly at the back. And, and you could say the goalkeeper, and then we're back to the hard versus bravo debate. But they are players who are used to handling the ball in that way. And, and that's the way they play. They, they work on it endlessly in, in mm. training. And, and Guardiola says, you know, this is going to take months and months for us to get it right. Or, you know, maybe not even this season to get it right. So for England to be trying to go that way is laudable on, on, on one level but I, I think it's um, you know realistically I think it's I think England do need to be a bit more pragmatic at times you saw particularly in the first half that first half hour when Scotland were pressing them well on um, Friday night they, you know they England were playing themselves into trouble. And Scotland were doing the same, funny enough. You could see it was like, you know, when, when, when sometimes the primary school level or secondary school level, you know, the games teacher will say, oh, look, you're not allowed to kick it across the halfway line. You've got to, you've got to pass. You've got to keep it at, you know, two touches or three touches or, or keep it at below head height or something like that. And it was like England and Scotland had both been told to do that. You could yeah. see um, <laughs> it, it, it was very unconvincing at times. And Stones yeah. is really good at it, but he's not playing well at, at club level right now. Playing better than last year. <laughs> I know, but he started magnificently at City and, and then perhaps the last month or so, I don't think it's really been flagged up. I mean, he has looked much more erratic. I would agree with Henry that, that Stones is definitely worth persevering with, particularly when England don't even have central defenders who are that good defensively. It's not like it's not like there's a, <laughs> there's a John Terry that he's keeping out because he wants to play on the, on the floor. It's, Stones is definitely worth England and Manchester City considering a long-term investment somebody to build around because he is going to be a very good defender I think he's also a very good footballer he he can help them play another way but I think he does need to be more pragmatic at times because I thought at times on Friday night he was playing people into trouble because they're just not as good as you know Joe Hart isn't as good as Claudio Bravo with the ball at his feet and you know you you look at the rest of the defenders and it's probably the same. Cass I will quote now from your piece. Stones made 89 passes against Scotland on Friday with a 94% pass accuracy, accuracy rating. But as impressive as that sounds, he really must be 100% accurate. No, no, you're going to laugh here? at this, right? But let's think about this, right? I, I fought long and hard about this on the train coming in. I hope in so. Because you have to, if you're going to take certain risks in the areas you play, you cannot have 
uh, less than 100% pass accuracy. Now, we all might sit and go, well, really? No one's going to have that. Well, if, sorry, excuse but, me if I jump in here, but if part of your job is to go and hit long passes with the outside of your boots, about Juan Sebastian Veron style, which England might occasionally want to do because they have fast uh, players in wide positions, surely those can't be 100% accurate. That's a different type of pull. I'm, talk, I'm well, talking... But you, but I know, the, but that's a very vague, isn't it? 90, well, you 94. Wrote it. Yeah, I know I did, but I, I was responsible. I'm talking about the type of passing as well. Right. But, so you uh, have to be accurate with the short passes, his long exactly. passes. The, the short passes okay. is the issue. His position, his body, his balance. He's, you know, he's got to get everything right. Now, think of it this way. Think of players whose careers in that position. Bobby Moore. I think we'll all know that Bobby... Bobby no, no, I, don't let me finish my point before you start laughing at me. Yeah. Right? Bobby Moore lost his England place over one massive error of judgment trying to overplay. Alan Hansen did it with Scotland. Tried to do it overplaying in a certain area. Lost his Scotland place. Who have been the best centre-halves in world football at playing that style of ball? Gerald Piquet? I would argue uh, Laurent Blanc. I think Laurent mm. Blanc was one of the best. I played against Laurent. Never made a mistake. It was literally, you couldn't get the ball off him. It was like playing table tennis with someone who just kept... Shame he was so slow, but yeah. But he was a fantastic footballer. So you, there was examples of guys of what he's trying to do. My problem is, if he doesn't have a 100% passing rate on the shorter type of balls that we're talking, because the, the longer ones are not going to concede right. goals, they're the ones that are going to get him in trouble. And they're going to be hugely costly. And also, I would add to it that if you're in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, which I find incredibly daft, where people defend, whether Guardiola... Imagine it's a title-winning game, and your defender decides to do something that's hugely risky in a moment of a sh- short ball, you concede a goal and lose the title. Because these things can happen. So he's got to get it 100% right. And it's more to do with the shorter passes, Gab, than the, the passes down the channel. It's the balls inside to defenders that are blind. Sometimes they're blind passes. The most dangerous part. Think of the game against Man City, Barcelona. Barcelona, for the first half, didn't make a mistake defensively with their passing. How was that goal for City made? A mistake by a player playing the ball inside. Dangerous ball. Aguero robs him. Goal 1-1. The well, game changed. he was changed. Big pressed, to be fair. Yeah, but it's a great press. Roberto. But teams are going to press you, Gab. So you are going to make mistakes. It's just right, choosing but, I mean, right okay, I, I was going to say, though, if they press you, then you hit it long. Or yeah. you, you, you know, you don't... I mean, there, there are ways to deal with it. I know pressing is all in vogue and, and, and has been for some years. And, you know, we're all super excited about Tuchel and Klopp. But this, too, I don't like pressing. And I think... Or I don't like the continuous 90-minute pressing. This too shall pass. I want to. I want to move on to Gareth Southgate because, of course, it's a lot more entertaining talking about him. I'll make a point about Southgate in a minute. If you're again, Ollie, for those who don't know, please set me straight. After the the, the keynote speaker departed, Gareth Southgate came in. He was given a four sort of a, a four game interim deal. That, that that's what he agreed. Now they have one game left. This friendly against Spain, and then everybody seems to agree that he's going to get the job. Can I ask a question? Was it the kind of thing where, like, if Southgate had come in, if they screwed everything up then they would not have given him the job is that the idea but now that he hasn't screwed it up he's fit for the job is that the the fa's logic i actually think he would have had to screw things up really spectacularly in order to not get the, uh, not get the job it, it, you know this this format audition this was something they proposed on the day of the Allardyce thing when they hadn't had time to think i don't know by the time the first match came around against malta they'd had a think and felt this is the way forward. But this way, it, over the course of this trial, it wasn't all this audition. It was not his job to gain. It was his job to lose. And I, I think it would have had to have gone spectacularly badly, given that they were playing Malta, Slovenia and Scotland. To go back to the last qualifying campaign, England won every qualifying game without really breaking sweat. And I, I think they beat Scotland without really breaking sweat. I think the one game they were made to sweat um, under Southgate, they, um, they, they, they were sort of hanging on quite nervously for a nil-nil draw in Slovenia and, and I don't think anybody at the FA thought there was any problem with that I, I think it's, right. it's been pretty much decided from the, from the moment you know, from, from before that first get together I don't want to get into the issue about who else England could have appointed because we've kind of done that to death I do have some questions about Gary Southgate because and Tony I know you know, I, I think you know him quite well I, I generally find him likable and of above mm. average intelligence but then sometimes I read things that he says supposedly which don't make sense to me so for example, there's a quote here from Henry's piece where he's talking about the last Euros where he says, John Stones in possession showed he's as good as, as any player in the tournament. He's talking about the, the, Euro, the, the last under-21 yeah. Euros. And I'm thinking, like, that's simply not true. I mean, if you want to make a category for central defenders, maybe. 
But that's simply not true. Some of the other stuff, there's a piece in the Sunday Times with uh, with David Walsh, the, the, the Team Sky guy, who wrote the book. He wrote this book, which was actually really good. I don't think anybody read it, but it was really good. It's called Woody and Nord. It's about yes. uh, Andy Woodman and, and Gareth and their relationship, platonic relationship, of course, but they were teammates and friends. And in that, there's some quotes which I'd forgotten. Like one of them, like Southgate says, she's talking about Alan Boxic, who, again, for those who don't recall, was a very talented, sometimes a bit self-indulgent striker mm. who moved to Middlesbrough, where he says, well, I wonder if when Alan Boxic is on his yacht in the Mediterranean, if the first thing he looks up is the Borough result. I mean, myself, like, what a, what a, what a demented thing to say. Why would it? <laughs> when you're on holiday, is it the Borough result, the first thing you look up? He, he made the point about that when Ericsson was there uh, as England coach, he felt that Ericsson slightly dumbed down uh, his tactics and his approach because he was dealing with English, with English players, as if, oh, if I come up with all this complicated, sophisticated stuff, the players won't get it. I mean, they seem like thoughtful, thought-provoking things to say. I mean, personally, I think probably a good thing when you're a national team player, a national team coach, that you don't introduce stuff that's too sophisticated to people who aren't used to it because you don't have time to implement it. What's your take on this, Cass? Well, I've, I've met Gareth a couple of times. I've been in his company. Chat to him. He's a very... Did you chat to him about football quiet. or did you just chat to him about like... Well, Not just life in general okay. and football, but we were yeah. in Portugal the last time I saw Gareth and we chatted and he's got a house in Portugal now. But um, he's very much um, a deep thinker about the game. Are these the conclusions a deep thinker reaches? Well, you've got to remember, Gab, you've got to remember the amount of daft things I've said over my career and written down. Oh, you could have a newspaper so, full of no it. Argument. It'd fill up the Daily no, Express. But the, curi- <laughs> the, the curious thing is, the curious thing is the, these, are, these are two points that yeah. are brought up by his biographer, yes. David Walsh, who presumably... Well, David's who very presumably, Exactly. Presumably he brought these things as he thinks they depict Gareth in a good light. And, they, and, and, yeah. and Henry, who, you know, is making a point about Stone. So, you know, he said this last year. He didn't say oh. it like... Or he said even more recently than that. It's not it's oh. something he said like when he was 16 years old. Yeah, well, David Walsh has always been, and I've met David more times than Gareth and right. chatted to him about Gareth, and he he admires Gareth enormously. Right. Not just because he did the book with him, as a person. And I think that's where most people are. If you meet Gareth, you'll like him. Because okay. he'll give you the time of day, he'll give you, he'll be interesting, and, it, you know, it'd be polite. I, 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 listen, I don't think there's any question that yeah, so more, I'm just so, trying to give more every, so than any recent... England manager, he's seen as a good, good as a guy. good egg. Yeah. Yes? yeah, yeah. Compared to Capello or the keynote speaker or yeah. Ericsson <laughs> or, or or whatever. <laughs> maybe maybe the nicest England manager since McLaren. Well, oh, oh. I, don't, I don't know Steve McLaren, yeah. but if you meet Gareth, you'll enjoy right. his company. He'll, he's a good he'll person. Make you, yeah, he's just he's just a decent guy, and he's a football man. You know, he really is. You know, he got given the captaincy at Crystal Palace, and a lot of people questioned that when he got it, thinking, "Really, Gareth?" Because he's not a, uh, he's not an outspoken, loud in the dressing room, screaming and shouting. But as time wore on, lots of people hugely respected him within that group at Crystal Palace, so they admired him as a captain. He's great. That he's a good guy. Is he a good manager though? Because I couldn't care less if he was a good guy or a no, bad guy. Well, it's all about, is he a good manager? What, what, has, it he makes done, it what has he done as a manager that tells you he's a good manager? Let's, well, let's give Ollie the last word on this. You'd give him the job, wouldn't you? Yeah, you probably would. But I would happily see an extension of the, of the current arrangement just to see, see how things go towards the end of the year. I mean, uh, the World Cup 2018 is, is a big deal. You know, England have not only to qualify, but they have to be in a situation... You know, where they can compete. And I want to see evidence that, that Southgate is a manager who can help them compete at that level, who can make them be more than they, you know, more than the, some of their slightly uh, sort of questionable parts. And Southgate has not proved he can do that. And I hope he can. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be one of those that makes that leap of faith and thinks, yeah, I, I, I hope Gareth Southgate can be that man. The Game Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, FanDuel. Uh, you may be wondering what FanDuel is, but FanDuel is one-day fantasy football. You can read about it at fanduel.co.uk. Personal confession here, I used to think fantasy games were were silly. In fact, I still do. But um, I really enjoyed fanduel.co.uk because it's it's simple and it doesn't drag on for the whole season. So it's, it's basically daily. You choose players. You have a budget. You choose players uh, for that day or, or, or that weekend. And, uh, and they win points. But, again, 
unlike some of those other fantasy games, they win points based not just on uh, goals and assists, but uh, they have a whole bunch of defensive mi- metrics and uh, uh, for defenders and, and midfielders to evaluate as well. And uh, so in that sense, I think it's a lot more faithful to uh, performances than other uh, fantasy games. You can also win uh, real money as well, which is a nice bonus. Uh, not necessarily billions, but if you're good at it, you can win games. So I've entered most weeks. I've only won two pounds, I think, thus far. So I I, <laughs> I think I need to step up my game, but you can have a go. In fact, if you sign up with a promo code, which is uh, the promo code is the game at fanduel.co.uk, you get your entry fee as free credit of up to 10 pounds if you don't win cash in your first contest. I've signed up. My uh, producer, Dave McGuire, has as well. So go to fanduel.co.uk, enter our promo code, the game, all one word, the game, in the promo code field on sign up, and you get the offer. Note that this is only available in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and uh, you need to be over 18. Please play responsibly, and terms apply. Right, enough England. Let's talk with Paul Joyce, who uh, first of all uh, has joined us very recently at the time. So we're yeah. all we're, we're all excited. Well uh, Julian wants to clap. I will well clap done, too. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Okay. Uh, you might quit after today, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you're obviously you're, you're you're based up north. You did a really interesting yeah. piece with a guy who had fallen off my radar screen, Jose Baxter. It's on page eleven of the game. Read it. In a nutshell, Jose Baxter was the uh, youngest ever debutante for Everton, younger still than some guy named Rooney, and he then tested positive uh, uh, twice, and the second time for for cocaine. He's been given a ban from football. You went to see him. Yeah. He's only 24 years old, and, and what I came away with was actually the fact that there's still actually a lot of hope in this story that this guy can get things back on track. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's a good good summation of it. Really, I think he, he's a young, young lad who um, who's made mistakes, and he, he'll hold his hands up, and he, he's not looking for sympathy. He, he's said he's put himself in stupid positions, but there's still a determination from him that, as you say, at 24, he's still got a future in football. His ban's in place until June 2017. Um, and it was just a catch-up, really, with him to see what a footballer does. He, he's banned from the game. He's not allowed to play any football or train with any clubs. So his daily routine now is very much, you know, going to the gym, trying to stay in shape. Towards June, he'll build up more football, sort of, wise, and then hopefully find himself a club, which I'm sure he will do, because he, he was a sort of... A, a talented player who's been blown off course a little bit. There's one thing from the story which sort of jarred me because we hear about footballers making 30, 40, 50 grand a week or a lot more in some cases. And then all of a sudden you kind of you kind of drop this line in sort of uh, about a third away away through, which blew me away, where you say that on the, it's a quote from him actually, says on the first of each month, he rings up the PFA and he pays off 400 pounds off of his fine of four grand which I guess was the was the um, was was the fine that he had to take yeah. on with the suspension. Now I don't know if you went into this, but is he in a situation where he doesn't? He's a professional footballer who doesn't have four grand in his bank account to pay the whole thing off in full. Did, well, did he, he fritter he, away not, his money? Basically, is what I'm asking. He took a gamble when he left Everton at, at 2012. He was um, offered a two-year deal by David Moyes. At that stage in his career, he was frustrated by a lack of opportunities at Everton, probably didn't see himself getting into the first team. So he, he actually took the gamble of turning down what was a lucrative contract in the search of first-team football. So he went for a trial with Crystal Palace, who were in the championship at the time, and I think he thought that was, was going to um, come to fruition, that he'd be taken on. He wasn't, and so he ended up going to Oldham, and the contract that he signed there was a fraction of this, uh, I think it was a tenth of the money he was off to Everton. So, you know, we sometimes hear about youngsters, you know, sitting on, on contracts and not being too bothered about playing, taking the money. He was somebody who, who opted to, to go and try and play football, and in a way... Maybe he's well. He's certainly worse off for that financially. Yeah, he, um, he, he could have sat there and just just counted his money and and just yeah, sort of screwed on the bench. There. David yeah. Moyes David Moy sort of said to him, you know, you'll be in and around the, the the sort of fringes of the first team. He'd been out on loan at that time at Everton. 
since he left, Everton have, have taken a more active um, look into how they progress youngsters, certainly under Roberto Martinez. Um, he brought in Joe Royal, and, and there's a more of a programme to get young players out on loan, so they're not just sat at clubs. So maybe he would have benefited yep. from from staying at Everton with hindsight. But Paul, can I just ask you one question? Because yeah. I started my career at Gillingham, and obviously, which is League One now, and we had a number of players that come from bigger teams, uh, yeah. you know, the bigger clubs in England, that dropped down uh, a similar age. And the thing that always was quite incredible for me to deal with was that these players found it so hard to drop down and that big stardom yeah. wasn't out there anymore. And to be brutally honest, a lot of lower league players are crazier than the boys at the top. They yeah. do a lot of crazier things. That, and, and one thing they don't have is money. Um, so there yeah. was quite resentment from players dropping down then realising that this is the world I'm in now. I'm part of uh, an industry yeah. that's far worse paid um, less glamorous, and plus, a lot of the lower league players can be just as crazy, if not more, than the the guys at the very top. Well, he, I think he says in the piece that he, he, he realises now he was, to, to use his phrase, silver spooned at Everton. Even before he left, officially left school, he was he was training the in and around the, the sort of first team. So, I think there was a real sort of eye-opener for him when the Crystal Palace move didn't come off and, and he, he has, has to start again sort of at Oldham. And, and to be fair to him, he, he did well at Oldham and got a move to Sheffield United and, and was, was scoring goals. And, but unfortunately, you know, he put himself, as he says, in, in stupid situations and, and now he's having to rebuild himself again with the stigma of somebody who's, who, who will have a reputation of, of being a, a bad egg. There has been contact already from clubs, so it's not put. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody off. Um, and I suppose they, there'll be clubs out there who see getting Jose Baxter for nothing next June as a, as a good sign and they would want for their clubs. Well, I have my own view on recreational drugs and and sport and banning players, but that's a conversation for a different time. Uh, It does make you reflect uh, on uh, on also some of the collateral fallout. Um, There's a great line in here as well where he talks about the effect it's had on his uh, his little sister. So powerful stuff, great piece uh, from you, Paul. It's in the game on Monday. Read it. By the way, I've got no sympathy for Joseph Baxter whatsoever. Why not? Because, like he says, he's the only one to blame. Yeah. And the guy wants to party. He wants to party. He wants to take cocaine to party. Mm. There's nothing else. He was playing well at Sheffield United. He was only 23. He had a still very good future ahead of him, maybe in the Championship, maybe even in the Premier League. Okay, uh, he wasted it all Joe, himself. Joe. No one yeah, you know, you no, know the, 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 one thing, the one thing I would say is that if you're in a... I know everybody has rules, but rules get selectively enforced if you're in the other industry if you were a trader in the city and you made enough no, money course. you might get drug tested by your employer you might test positive for cocaine you would probably yeah. not be banned does for he a mention year. anywhere that he, he thought about maybe going to rehab to properly clean himself no he gets offered he it looks it looks it looks like he said oh, i made a mistake i can only say my blame no, now i'm working at the gym the gym saved well, because, me i'm gonna go back because the think the reason he didn't go to rehab these all questions we should have asked paul joyce but, no, 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 but, <laughs> like, but no, I, I understood I, we couldn't go on my, and on and my, on about no, no, it, but, but my understanding is the reason he didn't go to rehab is because rehab is for addicts and his whole defense was based on the fact that it was a one-off exactly. recreational use this is part two of our chat with Damien Collins, uh, a conservative member of uh, Parliament from Folkestone. Am I right? Folkestone. There you go. And Damien, I, you struck me as kind of unique because, uh, Julian, you can back me up on this since you're foreign. And technically, I think you might be foreign too, right, Ziegler? Well, um, yeah. part, partly, partly. Partly. There you go. Yeah. I'm always struck by how, and I'm speaking in gross generalities here, other parts of Europe, 
football cuts across all social classes and political parties. My impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, Julian, is I get the impression that in this country, historically, football's been a working class game. And you may well come from a working class background, but generally the working classes aren't always associated with the conservative party. And I certainly had the impression that historically, conservative politicians haven't generally taken much of an interest in football relative to to others. And there might be demographics or, or whatever. Is that an incorrect characterization, or is it simply a case that maybe things have changed a bit in the last 20 years? Well, it's, it's a generalisation, I think. Oh, uh, so, 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 uh, yeah, there are plenty of uh, high-profile conservative politicians that have taken a big interest in football in the past. Like David Cameron? Uh, well, like David, David <laughs> Mellor, I think, obviously, but uh, in a slightly different way. But um, I think the probably could be one of the one of the reasons is that on the whole if you look at the big foot where the big football clubs are they tend to be in labor constituencies there was a terrible statistic when we were in opposition about the very small number of um teams who played in the I think it was like macclesfield and one or two others wickham right? and places yeah. like that it was kind of it was <laughs> a small you know, although of course um chelsea's the uh would be the, the flag carrier for the conservative <laughs> but, uh, but that's in yeah. that's in that's in in hammersmith and fulham isn't it yeah yes yeah. so, just across the bridge yeah exactly and there's and chelsea and fulham constituency so right. um so, yeah, that could be one of the reasons for it. But there's certainly plenty of uh, people that have um, taken a big interest. And indeed, if you looked at, if you like, the, the role of government in um, the business of sports administration and regulation, then actually during the, some previous Conservative governments, the, things like the Taylor Report were commissioned, all the rules and regulations around sort of stadium safety criteria all came in in the past. So definitely there have been times when a Conservative government has, has sought to get involved. And indeed... It was a Conservative government that set up the National Lottery, which does so much to fund all sorts of different sports in this country. So I was a football fan before I was a Conservative politician. So, uh, Who do you support? Uh, Manchester United, I support. So, um, Folks didn't make sense. Well, yeah, well, I, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in, in uh, Herefordshire. And so I suppose probably from Hereford, the Birmingham sides were slightly closer. But uh, Manchester wasn't too far away. And when I was about 16... The group of friends from school, we joined the Hereford branch of the Manchester United Supporters Club. So, as so many people do, we used to go up on a coach on um, on Saturday morning to Manchester when they were playing at home. And it now sounds like you're discussing something from a bygone era where you could just turn up at Old Trafford at half past two and queue and pay to stand at the Trafford end. So that's what we used to do. It seems to me that one factor that you have in this country, and maybe it is a function, a, a legacy of Thatcher in the 80s, is in some areas there's a lot of laissez-faire stuff. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that with overseas trusts and lack of transparency. We had that grotesque situation a few years back where uh, I'm blanking on the club now, but the Football League says, well, we know who the beneficial owners are, but you don't need to know. Mm. And all this nonsense like this, we have situations where you know football clubs say, well, we've got more transparency. Look, we're going to tell you how much we pay in commission to agents, but we're not going to tell you who we're paying. We're not going to tell you over what period of time. So, frankly, it's completely useless. Do you actually have any powers other than moral suasion to go and, and deal with this? I mean, obviously, you can't take change the tax regime, but can you? You're never not going to pass a football bill at some point, right? It's not. That's not all you can do is kind of try to persuade, right? Well, you can. Well, you could pass a football bill. I've I've drafted my own private members' bill, which I presented to Parliament in the last Parliament. So you could pass pass rules, but sometimes it's what the football authorities say is it's unfair to pick on football and create special laws just for football but what you could do is bring in some of the same rules that apply elsewhere to football so that's yeah, just a few for example we're not saying that all Brit for all british companies registered companies house it has to be clear who their their major investors and shareholders are they can't hide behind offshore trust they have to be we have to know who they are so that should apply to football clubs as well not just that the football authorities know who the owners are, but anyone can see who the owners are. That should that should apply. And just to be clear, that's not the case right now. Well, there are still there are still clubs who have these ownership structures, whereby the names of identities of the, the, the investors may may not be known. Um, I mean, Sisu, who own Coventry City, is an example of that. Sisu is effectively an investment fund which which owns the club on behalf of the people that have invested into it. So that's an area where you could get involved. Owners and directors, for example, no, take that for example, Ofcom as the broadcasting regulator in the UK, that can stop someone holding a broadcasting licence if they think they're an unfit person, if they think they're not only in breach of the rules, but they're likely to, be, to breach them because of their character and background. We don't have any sort of discretionary test running a football club. You know, but So that question there comes up, should we give the football authorities the legal power to block bad owners? The Sorry, can you just address that a second? Yeah. You said there is no discretionary test. That we, we hear about the fit and proper persons yeah. and then, you know, certain, rather, I remember Massimo Cellino's case when then he took it to court and stuff. And are you, when you say there is no discretionary test, are you 
discounting this test? Yeah, well, I think Celino demonstrated that it isn't discretionary at all. The FA don't have the legal power to say, we don't like the look of you um, because of the, your business track record and the things you've been involved with in the past. We don't think you should uh, own this club. What Celino demonstrated was they can only really apply UK company law. So in Celino's case, he'd been convicted of fraud. The conviction was spent because it was long enough ago. Although he was involved in legal proceedings in the Italian court, he hadn't been convicted of anything. And therefore, there was no legal basis for the Football League to say, you can't uh, take over this club. They tried to stop him. And he, went, you know, he, he through his lawyers, he demonstrated that they couldn't. So I think there's, there is a question there to say, could you put the, 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 the fit and proper person test on a statutory footing underpinned by law and then... And then say um, to the Football League and the FA, we, you know, you've got the legal power now to interpret your rules in the way you want to. This is something where it's not really an ideological thing. So it is something there are people interested in football across both sides of the aisle. So mm. do you run into the fact that once you start moving this, people are kind of saying, OK, Damien, that's great. But get to the end of the queue because we've got Brexit. We've got the economy. We've got this and that. And so it's, it's difficult to kind of do this from one month to the next. Yeah, the, 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 that's exactly true. There'll, there'll be other things the government are looking to do. But there's also been an approach in this country in, in, in the past that whereas there have been various reports and studies looking at the way governance in football should improve, I think the government's view is, well, we could support these initiatives, but we think this is really something that football should do itself. Probably what the government wouldn't do or would, wouldn't need to do is have a, a general law sort of restructuring the whole of football, but could actually just deal with some of the spe- specific issues directly around, you know, uh, owners and directors, uh, around declaring the ownership of, uh, uh, of clubs. You could do that just you know, through different channels uh, rather than having a whole new law or act of parliament to restructure football. But the bigger challenge, I think, actually with football governance, and this has been flagged up by the reports of the Select Committee um, in the House of Commons and other independent reports, is that there are problems with the way the FA is structured that make it weak as a governing body, that the chairman and the board don't really have executive control or power over the whole organisation. And the way the FA is set up, it's almost impossible to change that. So uh, the question might be, well... If, if football can't change but wants to, is there a role for the government in helping to pass a law that would allow the FA to change in the way it needs to? Right, final question, which I'm going to throw out. This is kind of a conclusion I've come to in my, in my old age, that there's a finite amount of resources. And while it's great to have a really good national side that goes and, and wins things, that always needs to be balanced out by, by mass participation, which means you know, kids' football, amateur football, the elderly, differently abled women uh, and, and so on and maybe we in the media are guilty of this but when people you know we get a new fa chairman like greg dyke talking about winning things by, by by 2022 or whatever it was to me that's just silly because a it's it's so difficult to win things there's so many uncertainties you can't go out and set that as your target or because you're likely to come short but secondly i don't know to what degree that should be the priority i don't know how much of a debate there is and can you talk about where to set the balance and what the role of the FA should be. Because the reality is, if you create the best possible system for producing very good professional footballers, that often comes at the expense of football as a social vehicle that people can go and play on. I mean, I think that's just a fact. You, you, you've got to look for success in all areas. The success of the Premier League means the best English players play in England. And if they were all playing elsewhere around the world, we'd probably be complaining about the fact that you know, we never see our best players because <laughs> they're, they're, they're playing in more lucrative leagues. But you want the national team to be a success as well. And the winter break is a great debate. It goes back to what we've been talking about, about the FA. The FA, even if the FA thought for the national team a winter break would be good, they, would don't, they don't have the power to enforce it. They wouldn't get the support of the leagues to do it. So there's a, there's a problem there. This summer, though, the European Championships demonstrated that there's not a problem with England internationals being, being overplayed out because most of them don't play week in week out for their club time right. so they get 20 games a season they've done they've done well so so they they should have had plenty in the tank when it came to those championships i think the problem is the england national team has probably never been weaker and the number of english players that play regularly in the premier league or our top division has never been lower so there probably is a relationship there and and the number of coaches too i mean there's not it's not just that we we don't seem to have anyone who's qualified to be the england manager who's english Gary Southgate appreciates yeah, yeah. uh, and um, you know, with all respect to Gareth, you know, sort of who's a great, great, great man, you know, but there would barely be an Englishman in the running to be the manager for one of the top six or seven Premier League clubs. And that, what does that say about? Can't just be the quality of English coaching, but just the opportunities for you know Englishmen to coach at the higher levels of the, of the game. We we seem to be falling backwards here. So I think, you know, again, Greg Dyke was right to try and think about how you address that. I don't think he came up with the answer. But even the answer we did come up with was you know, practically unenforceable. 
I leave you with a strict football question to see you out. Obviously, you mentioned this before. You're a Manchester United fan. Are you going to finish top four? And if you don't finish top four, is your mood to give Mourinho another year? I think the next. I think on top four, what have they got? They've got Arsenal and West Ham coming up, mm-hmm. so and Everton. You've got. To, I think they've got to be taking you know six six points or more out of that, those nine. I think to try. Otherwise, I think the the danger is they're going to fall too far behind. The problem is they don't score enough goals. You look at the look at the difference between Man United and the top four is they've scored a lot less goals, and that was the problem last season too. So, I mean, let's hope Swansea wasn't a um, a mirage, but but a step forward. And, and do you know what's wrong with Mkhitaryan? Do you know where he is? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Did you know? I, want to, I think. I, do, I think. I think. We want. To, I want to, We want to see a photograph of him holding a copy of the Times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Today's paper. <laughs> Davian Collins, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, time now for some quick hits. Quick hits this week are a little bit lame, but that's what happens when there's no football. Gregor Robertson went to the game between Chesterfield and Sheffield United, a.k.a. the Chet Evans Derby, and noted that the crowd were wholly supportive. Uh, Cass, no surprise there, right? No. Most people have accepted now that the guy served his sentence. He can go and play his trade. And uh, I think, you know, obviously it helps when you're playing for one team and you were formerly the Sheffield United player. (laughs) So uh, both sets of fans would have some sort of sympathy for you. And um, he would probably have liked to have done a bit better he did on the day because the game was dominated in the second half by Sheffield United. And they've done brilliantly lately. And I'd prefer to talk about that than how Ched was received. Chesterfield and Sheffield United are in the same division. Are they? Yes, the League, League One. All right, League One. Right, that's probably why they played each other. A late, late goal from Alexander Mitrovic meant Wales had to settle with a draw against Serbia, leaving them third in Group E, four points behind the Republic of Ireland, the team that Tony Cascarino used to play for, and two behind the Serbs, the team Tony Cascarino probably wishes he could have played for. However, they've already played three of their four matches on home soil. Ollie, will Gareth Bale be watching the World Cup on TV, and uh, how much of a disappointment would it be? He's watched every other World Cup on TV. Every Welshman has watched every World Cup since 1958 on TV. But it's, it would be a, a big disappointment to Wales, having not only qualified for the Euros, but done so well there, all the momentum of the last few years. And they've started slowly, poorly, particularly at home in, in this group. One, one winner, four so far. They've got big games to come, notably um, away to Ireland and Dublin in March. And um, yeah, they, they, they need to get their skates on. Notice how I asked him whether he will be watching it on television, meaning they won't qualify, and Ollie skillfully skirts the question. I see a future okay. in politics for him. Here, here you go. Right now, I would say Wales are not going to qualify. That would be my All right. <laughs> Matthew Syed wrote about the USA v. Mexico qualifier and the, quote, wall of unity at the beginning when uh, the two sets of players lined up intermingled and with arms interlocking. Obviously, this is a reference to uh, the U.S. presidential election, Donald Trump, fears of a wall being built, or or fears or hopes from some people, of a wall being built along along the uh, southern border. Now, the interesting thing is, Matthew makes a point that we overanalyze the symbolism of sports, and he cites a whole bunch of examples, including Muhammad Ali, who apparently was against integration, uh, according to Syed. Julian. You're French. I think it's fair to say that the impression I have of, of, of France is that you guys love your, your symbolism and ascribing greater meaning to most of the things you do. What's your take? We do love symbolism. And I, and I completely disagree with, with Matthew Sayed on this one. I think sports and politics have always been linked forever. I think it was a great, mes- great message from both the, the Americans and the Mexicans before the game. And, 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 I, and I hope, I really hope that it continues to be like this. It's an interesting point because there... I, from what I'm told, there were some a real minority of the crowd uh, of the U.S. fans. The game was in Columbus, Ohio, mm. you know, who, who started some, well, they didn't boo, but they started some chants like, build the wall, build, and they were generally shouted Shut down, down. Yeah. By, by by other. It's, a, I think, inevitable, though, I, to me, if I can my own two cents here, these things acquire whatever symbolism we place upon them. So if we decide they stand for something, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Steven Gerrard is leaving Major League Soccer and the LA Galaxy. Cass, you have a little crystal ball there. Uh, what are you seeing next for the former Liverpool captain? Is it another playing contract somewhere else? Is it coaching? Is it media? He'll definitely come back to England. I think it's quite clear that... Merseyside, he, I think. Um, his um, attitude towards going to America, and I was told very early on that he took his very close friend to 
LA for six months to live with him and I didn't think he embraced America at all and that well, Gaza did it when he went to Rome <laughs> it well, great for him yeah but I think I maybe think Jared I, has better choice Stephen than didn't I know he got right. injured a lot but I watched quite a bit of the Galaxy and he played really poorly I think he'll come back and I think it'll be Liverpool connected because there's nowhere else for Stephen really to go maybe media but I think more so the club would use Stephen in but you reckon capacity. he's done playing oh absolutely if you'd have watched him in last year yeah Stephen's uh, cannot get around nowhere near like he used to. Do you think he's the type of person who would benefit or, or could thrive as a as a coach or has he shown any interest in it? Well, uh, if, if you want to be a coach, you've got to have a lot of desire and motivation to go and do everything and want to be a coach. I, I don't know. I don't know how much Stephen's got the desired attitude to be in that, um, you know, that, that line of start being a, a coach, taking it on to the levels of being a manager. I don't know. Plenty of stories last week about dissatisfaction in the ranks at Manchester United and the mystery over Chris Smalling's toe, whether it's broken or not broken. But Ander Herrera says everything is fine. Mourinho's a straight talker and the team is, quote, enjoying the day today. I love it when people use that line. I've never heard it anywhere other than here. Oh, he's enjoying his football. Ollie, you have special insight into this, given your close personal relationship with uh, Sergio Romero. Where does the truth lie? Well, the truth is, I mean, Mourinho never specified Chris Smalling. That, that, that needs to be said. But he did say, Luke Shaw told me this morning he wasn't in a condition to play, and Chris Smalling doesn't feel he can play 100% with his pain. He then proceeded to go on this, uh, can we call it a rant or, or a tirade or anything like that? I don't know whether we can. but A reasoned explanation, perhaps? It was certainly fairly damning of players who don't play when they are in pain, which is precisely what he said Chris Smalling hadn't done. And then it transpires that Chris Morley has a broken toe. So would he be expected to play? I don't know. I don't think he should be. Yeah, Mourinho can say he didn't specify Chris Morley. He wasn't talking about Chris Morley, but he certainly implied he was. And um, and while Ander Herrera would certainly be happy to be, you know, entitled to be happy with the day-to-day, because I think he's one of the few players who's really sort of kicked on so far under Mourinho, I think there is, a, there is still a slight cloud over United, as there has been for the past three seasons. Mourinho is expected to banish that cloud, and it hasn't happened yet. So um, it will be interesting to see how things go when he's got more time on the training ground with them after the international break, when, when, and then once the European games disappear. It will be yeah. I'm, I'm keen to see how that goes because right now it has been a slow start, and um, you know there, there are still some tensions to be ironed out there. Cass, a very quick one for you on ESPN. Steve Nichol made the point that it is physically impossible to play with a broken toe. (laughs) It's not not something you can ever do. I've never suffered a broken toe in my limited high school and university playing career. Uh, I don't know if you have. uh, Do you agree with that? Is it just not possible to play with a broken toe? I don't know. what Any part of your body that was broken could you play with? Gordon Cowan's played with a broken leg. So, I mean, maybe if you're hard enough, you can, but... A broken leg? Well, yeah, well, he had a stress factor that he didn't know he had. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, once you've been <laughs> diagnosed you've got a broken leg, I'm pretty run. sure you're not going to play. So, um, no, uh, of course you can't play. Okay. There's a lot of swelling around broken bones, and that in itself is pretty difficult to, to get on a football field. Thank you, Dr. Cascarino. Apparently Usain Bolt is going to train with Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Julian, this is just a naked publicity stunt, but a very fun one, right? Yeah, Usain Bolt's uh, main sponsor is... Yes, and Borussia Dortmund's main sponsor is... Who? The same one, Puma. Obviously, that's where the whole thing comes from, Gab, yeah? I thought he was a United fan. He was a United fan, but United's sponsor is not Puma, so, you know, it doesn't work there. The good thing, though, is that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang could have a 50-meter race, because over 100 meters, he can't beat her. But I think on 50 meters, Aubameyang has a chance against Bolt, because as we all know... Bolt stars is not the greatest. My money's on Bolt. I'll have as much as you like. <laughs> on 50 metres? Oh, I don't Seriously. care. 10 metres, I'll give you 10 you know metres as well. They should turn this into some kind of pay-per-view spectacular. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I, I would happily pay I know, me 10 too. euros to go online, just, just stream it. Yeah. yeah. Borussia Dortmund, if you're listening to me. They are listening BFLB. as well. They are listening. Yes. Heard me on. Do this. But if, 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 if you say Bolt wants an actual career in football or, you know, just in the short term, perhaps. I mean, he's got to look at the rest of uh, Puma's collection. Leicester, could he get in the Leicester team? Well, probably not. But no, he can't go to another club in England because of the supposedly United links, you know, being his club and all of this. That's the problem. Has anybody seen him play football? I mean... He oh, says he's got oh, good. No, I know, I know he says that, but I mean, I'm sure there's all those I YouTube... I saw him, well, I interviewed him in, target, man, wouldn't he? in July and we were doing little passes. There was a ball there and 
Hey, look, the touch looked okay. So he can side foot the ball yeah, to okay. five yards to but you. But when okay. Tuchel, for a guy who doesn't like running, because he doesn't like running, you send ball. But with Tuchel, where you have to run all the time, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he just picked the wrong club and the wrong coach. Can I, Sorry, can did, I did, you, did you, so you say you think he'd be a good target man? Because that's what you want. You, you want the fastest was, man in the world uh, to play with his back <laughs> goal? Can I just... <laughs> with no space behind him. Just, 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 just take this on one step further, right? Would the boy Dembele... Uh, Borussia Dortmund, he, wouldn't he be quicker? Abaya? Dembele would be quicker on the ball. I think Aubameyang is quicker than Dembele without the ball. Oh, I think because okay. I thought Aubameyang. he was the most quickest thing I've seen in football. On the ball, yeah, he's, no one is quicker than him on the ball, even not Messi. <laughs> Gab, one for you. We hear that Argentina are in trouble in South American qualifiers yes. for the World Cup. Please tell us that Messi will make it to Russia. I think they will make it because, yes, while it's true that they are sixth in South American qualifying and only uh, the top four are guaranteed a spot with a fifth-place finisher going into the playoffs, it's also true that they're only two points out from uh, uh, from third place. More worrying to me is, I mean, they got absolutely trounced by, by Brazil on Thursday night. And for the first time in a long time, I watched Brazil, and I actually, I, as you may probably gather, I am not Brazilian. I got excited. They were fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And I want to make one more point. So many people are dismissive about the football in China. I don't watch the CSL. I can't comment. But to make the point that, oh, these guys have gone to China, so they must be rubbish now, and they can no way they can come back because, you know, the standard is so poor in China, it's nonsense. Um, Paulinho and Renato Augusto both play in China, and you can you can joke about Paulinho, oh, it was rubbish at Tottenham. But you know what? He was up against freaking Angel Di Maria, who you all thought was the greatest thing in the world, some kind of Argentine Aryan Robin, right? Mm, and yet, Paulinho and Renato Augusto more than handled him. They handled Messi when when, when he dropped deep. And I don't know, I, I think Brazil have a, have a pretty neat group of players. Good goal, Coutinho's goal. Coutinho looks fantastic yeah. uh, in that Jesus. mix. Uh, Gabriel Jesus, still just 19 years old. Yeah. I also wonder... Do we know that they said for a fact when he's coming to City? January, isn't he? Is it definitely? Oh, yeah. Well, there you that go. Would be yeah. cool, Good news for you, Nacho. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well done, Brazil. Argentina, they got a lot of things to, to, to sort out. And, yeah, Romero, Mas, Mas Sabaleta. My goodness. Mascherano as well. Yeah. Not a good day at the office. Right, that's all we've got time for this week. Many, many thanks to my guests today, Damian Collins, Julian Lawrence, Ollie Kay, Tony Cascarino, and making his debut on the game podcast, the very excellent Paul Joyce. Remember, it's just £12 for a 12-week trial. You can just search The Times online. You can subscribe. You can get lots of good stuff. Please press that subscribe button on wherever you choose to download your podcasts. Uh, I know there have been a few technology issues of late. Hopefully, they've been all sorted out. You can leave a review on iTunes as well if you're listening. Please, only leave good reviews. Don't leave bad ones because you hurt our feelings. We're going to be back next week. I've rambled on too much. Till next time. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on. Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.